Second Kings, chapter six, starting in verses eight uh, through twenty-three. I'll be reading from the New American Standard translation. Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, "In such and such a place shall be my camp." The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, "Beware that you do not pass this place." For the Arameans are coming down there. The king of Israel sent to the to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. Now, the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? One of his servants said, no, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and take him. And it was told him, saying, behold, he is in Dothan. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now, when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his master said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountains was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. When they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. Then Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought them to Samaria. It came about when they had come into Samaria that Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Then the king of Israel, when he saw them, said to Elisha, my father, shall I shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? He answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master, and the marauding bands of Arameans did not come again into the land of Israel. Well, it's getting pretty close to getting back to normal, I guess. Summer's rapidly coming to a close. And as Dan has already said, we're getting back into this academic year and all the busyness that goes with it for so many of us. This morning, our subject is very much sight. Our sight is one of the five senses we ordinarily possess, along with hearing, smell, taste, and touch. They enable us to perceive the world around us. We all too easily take these senses for granted, but these abilities are truly amazing. Our eyes and ears alone 
are incredibly complex organs that would have to be considered astounding examples of optical and audio engineering, except they weren't manufactured in some high-tech industry. They grew that way out of a single fertilized egg. That's just astounding what you think of it. I mean, we couldn't make a better telescope than these things that we possess just by virtue of being human beings. Of all our senses, I doubt whether sight would likely be anyone's first choice if we were asked to give up one of them. From earliest childhood, we've made use of this sense in order to connect with the world around us. Without it, we quickly become disoriented and even fearful, losing our primary means of orientation to our surroundings. Anyone who's visited a deep cavern and had the lights turned off on you knows that feeling of being sightless and how helpless it can feel. Our vision, after all, is dependent on light on light sourced by or reflected from our surroundings. And without light, there would be no sight. And light itself is a really strange thing. It's made up of photons that, depending on how you observe them, can seem like tiny little packets of energy or waves. That may not seem as incongruous to you as it is to physicists. Unlike the basic constituents of atoms, electrons, protons, and neutrons, light photons has no inherent rest mass. They don't exist except in motion. And in a vacuum, all light travels at the same speed. Nearly 300 million meters per second. That's fast. That's really fast. That's about 10 million times faster than we can legally drive on the highways. But it still takes light eight minutes to get to us from the sun. And over four years from the nearest star. So we probably won't be contacting any people out there in person very soon. More about sight and light later. Our passage today, as I said, deals with sight, both the ordinary kind that we're used to and an extraordinary kind that was given to Elisha for the work God called him to do as his prophet to the northern tribes of Israel. As Tyler related to us last week, these events take place in that northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes that broke off from the two in the south that were centered on Jerusalem because of the abuse that they had experienced under King David's grandson, Rehoboam. Rather than be dependent on attending religious services at the temple in Jerusalem, they formed their own centers of worship in Bethel and Dan. And they set up golden calf idols in those centers, patterned after the golden calf that the Israelites had fashioned when they were waiting, becoming impatient for Moses to come down from Mount Sinai when they were making their way through the Promised Land. 
They soon added the worship of other false gods from their neighbors as they strayed further and further from the true faith of their forefathers. Elijah's and Elisha's ministry served to demonstrate the power of the only true God and were a clear call to return to the worship of the God of Israel alone. God's power was demonstrated in the various things we've been looking at through the summer. Elijah's calling for a famine in judgment against Israel's apostasy, his miraculous provision of food for a widow, and even raising the widow's son to life. And finally, his defeat of the false prophets at Mount Carmel. Carmel. He passed his mantle on as a prophet to Elisha. And Elisha continued to work miracles, even raising another widow's son back to life himself. Today's passage doesn't deal so much with a physical miracle as with God's provision of supernatural insight. This initially permits Elisha to give the king of Israel information to help him avoid Syrian ambushes numerous times and later provides encouragement for his servant in the face of apparently hopeless circumstances. You're going to hear me talking about Syria. The scripture passage is read from the New American Standard this morning talked about Aram, but they're the same thing. Aram was what we call Syria. The, let's, let's open in prayer before I go any farther. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say for us in this passage. Help it strengthen our faith and enable us better to serve you and accomplish the work that you've prepared for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the characters in today's passage aren't very different from last week. Uh, Syria is back at war with Israel, and the Syrian king is disturbed. It seems that Israel's forces somehow have previous knowledge of all his plans so that they're able to avoid his attacks. Viewing things from a human perspective, he assumes that there's got to be a spy in his camp. Passing information back to Israel. And he questions his trusted servants about this. Will you not show me who is for the king of Israel? But one of them reports, it's not us. It's known that Elisha, an Israelite prophet, is the one who knows the king's plans and reveals them to the king of Israel. I suspect this servant must have had a good relation with the king of Syria. Because there's a bit of sarcasm in the way he says it. Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. I don't know whether we'd like people knowing what we spoke in our bedroom. But I'm sure the king of Syria didn't want Israel to know. <clears throat> Apparently... Syria is the one who has spies. Someone's been reporting back to them from Israel of how Israel's getting this information. Some commentators suggest that Elisha actually had his own contacts in Syria, and that's the way he got this information for the king of Israel. But the text and the way it expresses it certainly belies that interpretation. In spite of the northern kingdom's worship of pagan gods, Elisha apparently had good enough relations with its king to aid him in his conflicts with Syria. 
God seems to be going the extra mile to make the king aware of his need to forsake the idols that can do nothing for him and to return to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob instead. The Syrian king now redirects his attention to the source of the leaks that are frustrating his plans. He asks for information about Elisha. Where can we find him so we can seize him and eliminate our problem? Well, a quick investigation that reveals that the the prophet is in Dothan, a town only about 10 miles north of Samaria, the Israelite capital. Plans are made for a major military thrust to surround the town and capture Elisha. Well, if you're like me, you're wondering, how does he think he's going to pull this one off? If Elisha probably will already know what he intends to do, just like he's known in the past. Dothan is mentioned only one other time in Scripture. It's the area where Joseph's brothers were shepherding their flocks when they conspired against him and sold him into slavery in Egypt. Its name may mean two springs, which makes it a logical place to shepherd flocks. It's curious that on that occasion we find one group of people Joseph's brothers, conspiring to rid themselves of a problem caused by the fact that God has given special knowledge to the brother that they see as their biggest problem. Sound familiar? Here, hundreds of years later, we find a similar event transpiring. The stakes may appear to be greater nations on the surface now. We have a king sending an army to capture a prophet who is hampering his plans to subdue a neighboring kingdom. Little did the Syrian king know the fool's errand he was sending his troops on. And little did Joseph's brothers know of the incredible adventure they were sending their brother Joseph on and how he would play a dramatic role in the course of his family's history and in the course of the future history of the greatest power of that era, Egypt. The Syrian army had to venture 40 miles into into Israel to reach Dothan, which was only, as I said, about 10 miles from its capital, Samaria. This site has been excavated in modern times and was seen to be a significant settlement on the trade route leading north from Samaria. It stood on a hill having about a 200-foot elevation above the Jezreel Valley. Dothan was about a hundred miles from Damascus, the capital of Syria. Now, Israel has been under constant threat from their northern neighbor, and perhaps Syria already had significant forces in or near Israel's borders. But this was a pretty major effort to capture one man. The Syrian forces sneak in and surround Dothan overnight. When Elisha's servant goes out in the morning to start his daily chores, he sees a town that's surrounded on all sides by horses and chariots and armed men. He reports their desperate situation to Elisha, probably thinking that a bad end is in store for them all. But Elisha, on the other hand, doesn't seem perturbed. At the very least, he's learned from experience, to have confidence 
that whatever appearances may say, God is in control. However, his bold statement, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them, makes it seem as if he already has had supernatural insight into God's provision for their safety. And now he prays that God will allow his servant to see what he presumably already sees. Elisha's servant has been viewing his surroundings in the light of the early morning sun. He was seeing the same things that we would have seen with our eyes. But there's much more to light than what our eyes can see. The electromagnetic spectrum of light ranges from radio waves on one end through microwaves, infrared, visible, ultraviolet, X-ray, all the way up to gamma rays on the high end. Our eyes can only detect a very small portion of that spectrum. We term it the visible range for obvious reasons. It represents frequencies from four to seven hundred million million cycles per second. For comparison, sound of musical instruments is measured in hundreds of cycles per second. Radio waves are typically measured in hundreds or thousands of meters. Visible light is represented by things that are waves that are about a hundredth the thickness, the, the dimensions of a human hair. On the other end of the spectrum, gamma wavelengths are on the order of the size of the nucleus of an atom. It's a tremendous difference in dimensions. Our vision is very limited compared to that enormous spectrum, but it's optimized for the world that we live in and the brightness and the size of objects that we need to see and that are important to us. The brightest thing that we are used to seeing, typically, with our sight is the sun. It's what illuminates the world around us during the day and even provides light at night by reflection from the moon. The sun is so bright that we can't look directly at it without damaging our sight. We would literally fry the cells in our retina, which collect the light entering our eyes and transmit it to the visceral processing centers in our brain. Our brains do a pretty good job, though, of warning us. And whenever we might, our vision might drift onto the sun to look away quickly before damage is done. An inadvertent look may leave us with a dark spot in our vision for a brief time, depending on how quickly you averted your eyes. It takes our eyes about a half an hour to fully adapt from being in bright sunlight to their most sensitive abilities in a dimly lit room or, say, at nighttime. When they are fully adapted, they're incredibly sensitive. We can detect differences in light on the order of a factor of mil a million in illumination. A typical everyday camera is probably sensitive to something more like one part in 10,000. Because the sun is so bright, it saturates our vision, and we miss out on the details of its structure. Let's look at this first image, if I can get that up here now. 
Okay. What do I have to do? <laughs> Got it on? There we go. So, you know, if you look at the sun, that's kind of what you see, right? The reason why this, the sun in pictures like this has streamers going out like that is an artifact of cameras. Cameras have sharp edges for the way they stop down the light coming in, and it's those edges that make those rays. You might, you might also see them when the sun streams through clouds. But the sun is 400,000 times brighter than the moon. We can look directly at the moon and see vague forms in it. The all too familiar man in the moon. But we can't look at the sun with our naked eyes and see anything there. The solar surface is kind of blind to us because it is so bright. The only time we can actually, with our regular vision, see something of the disk of the sun is if the sun is really low on the horizon and it's a really hazy day. And then you can actually look at the disk briefly, but it's not wise to look at it very long then either. The light coming from the surface of the sun, called, called the photosphere, completely blinds us to some very interesting things that go on above it. And we only get to see those regions when a total eclipse occurs or by means of some pretty exotic cameras that have been placed in solar orbits between the Earth and the Sun. During a total solar eclipse, the Moon, which is almost exactly the same angular dimensions as the Sun, blocks the light from the photosphere that looks so bright in this image. And then we suddenly become aware of a lot of other things. If you're able to see a total eclipse, one of the striking things, of course, is that it suddenly looks like deep dusk. And you can see moons and planets and the stars. And you see this kind of wispy halo around the black disk of the moon. If you take a close-up photo like we would see through a telescope at such a time, you even see other things like up in that, if I know how to do, whoops, what did I do? What did I do, Dave? There we go. This is what I want. Right up there, you can see this thing sticking out from the surface. And it's a solar prominence. It's a bunch of hot gases that have been ejected from the surface of the sun along the lines of magnetic fields. Now, if we... If we are able to see this in a slightly different way, with our, with our eyes we can actually see more light of the corona as it extends out from the surface of the sun. To give you an idea of what that looks like, but even better than what we would normally see looking at it, I want to look at some other pictures here. This is, this is back to a close-up of the edge of the sun that shows some of those flares. And it also shows a white rim around the surface of the sun, which is called a chromosphere, which, again, is invisible except during a total eclipse. 
And the beauty of a total eclipse is something, is just a gift that God's given us because the moon just happens to be at the right distance so that it is just the same size as the sun and completely covers the disk without being ten times the size of the sun and completely covering the corona so you wouldn't see any of this. Now, if, if we go on now and we look at an eclipse with a very special filter called a radial filter, who, which decreases the amount of light getting through the closer you get to the surface of the sun, then you really see how far out that corona extends. It's an incredibly beautiful thing. The, the sun itself is 865 million miles across. It's 100 times the size of the Earth. But this corona, this solar atmosphere, extends out clearly much farther than that distance from the surface of the sun. This image was taken during a time when there were very few sunspots. If there are a lot of sunspots, this would be called solar minimum. If there are a lot of sunspots, a time called solar maximum, then the, the corona looks much more spherical. And if you have that other type of image for that time, it looks like this. And again, you can get the perspective. There, there are some things that are coming out from the surface here, more solar prominences all around it. This was a very busy time. Those things are tied to sunspots. Now, these are neat to see, but there are instruments we have in orbit between the Earth and the sun which allow us to see even more amazing things about the sun. This is a satellite called the Solar and Heliospheric Observatory that was launched, I think, in 1996 and is still operational, though only one, one of, piece of its instrumentation is still working. But <clears throat> as, we, as we look at this, this is what the sun looks like ordinarily through a telescope. And these are sunspots. They're like magnetic storms on the surface of the sun. They look dark. But if you could see them separate from the sun itself, they would actually be brighter than the moon. This, the orange image, is taken in light that is coming from helium atoms that have lost one electron. And that only happens when they're at temperatures of 70,000 degrees or more. The blue image over here is taken in the light of iron atoms that have lost eight to nine electrons. And that takes temperatures of a million degrees. And finally, this gold-shaped, gold-colored image down here, or bright yellow, is taken in the light of iron that has lost 14 electrons. And that takes temperatures of two million degrees or more. The thing you can see, if you look at these, the amazing thing is, that the hotter you get, the higher you are in the sun's atmosphere. You'd think that the closer you are to the surface, the hotter it would be. But it's just the opposite. So the, the orange image doesn't have a whole lot of light beyond the surface. The blue image, you start to see, see things getting out farther. And on the gold image, they're way out here. This, this funny thing over here... That's an image of the magnetic fields on the sun. 
And the reason why we can do that is because magnetic fields affect the wavelength of light. So we can use special cameras and instrumentation to tell what the magnetic field lines on the sun are. And as you can see, sunspots are all about magnetic fields. We'd, we'd essentially be blind to all of these things if we didn't have special instrumentation or special conditions that allowed us to see things that our eyes normally wouldn't see. There's so much more that we've come to understand about the universe that we live in as we've been able to develop instrumentation to augment the ordinary senses that we have with our eyes, the eyes that God has given us. And this isn't to say that God could have done better. I want you to imagine what I would have been like with a microwave antenna, radio antenna sticking out here. Don't even go to what I'd be like if I could sense x-rays and gamma rays. <clears throat> We'd be pretty weird, but we are ideally suited for the world that we live in. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. For this world. And he's given us the intelligence and creativity to use the elements that we find in this world to create instruments that allow us to learn more and more about all the wonderful things that escape our ordinary senses and seeing on their own. We should never take any of these amazing aspects of our physical bodies for granted. God intends for us to use them to enjoy this world that he's provided for us, but even more so to relate in loving and, and, and caring ways to those around us. In some ways, I would address these following words particularly. Not, they're for everybody, but particularly for those of you who are kind of in the first third or half of your life. You see... Your senses are going to dim with age. And your bodies are going to wear out. And your minds will get a bit slower. I can say that from experience. But don't be tempted by your peers to hasten that process by using drugs or stimulants or other means for short-term pleasure or escape from reality at the expense of your long-term physical and mental health. It's simply not worth it. And don't use the intelligence and creativity that God has given you, blessed you with, to fashion false images of who you really are, whether in your immediate interactions with other people or in the images you present on social media. Your relationships with others, not the things that you accumulate, will form the basis for your emotional well-being. And they are best served by taking Jesus' words to heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Both of those commands focus on putting the other person first before you think of what you can get out of a relationship. 
If you want relationships built on solid footing, you need to start with honesty and humility. The greater the gap between who you are inside and the image you project outside, the more anxiety and pain you'll be generating for yourself in the long run. Be honest with yourself and with others, and you'll live a much better life. But as Christians, it's not just this world that we feel, the one that we can see with our physical senses, that we can touch, that we can taste and smell. We believe there's more than just this physical body. There's a spiritual side of life that can only be perceived with spiritual senses. Paul explained this in his first letter to the Corinthian church. Oops. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. No physical instrumentation can reveal my thoughts to you. I've got to share them with you, either in the printed word or in the spoken word. The God we worship is a personal God. He's not some nebulous force that is simply part of the physical universe itself. We can learn some things about God from the universe he's created. But what Paul is saying here is that God will only reveal his thoughts to those who possess his spirit. As Elisha's servants were viewing the Syrian forces arrayed against them, he at first saw only their overwhelming physical size and power, and he was terrified. Elisha had a different perspective. When he began his ministry, he had asked for and received the gift of God's Spirit when he took over Elisha's role as God's prophet in Israel. He had asked, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he Elijah, that is, said, You have asked the hard thing, yet if you see me when I am being taken away from you, it shall be so for you. Elisha saw the Syrian armies with the same physical senses that his servant did, but he wasn't fearful because he saw something else that his servant couldn't see. God apparently allowed him to see his forces surrounding them and shielding them from their enemy. Elisha had developed a firm trust in God's purposes and in his faithful care and protection of his servants. He could have just left his servant with the assurance of his words. Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. But he wanted his servant to actually be able to see for himself the protection that God had provided for them. So he prayed that God would open his eyes so he could see this as well see the spiritual battle that lay before them and those who were involved in it. God presumably didn't allow anyone else to see this. Not the inhabitants of Dothan, not the Syrian army. And as they commenced their attack, 
to take Elijah cap- Elisha captive. It's very hard to say Elisha and not Elijah, isn't it, Tyler? <laughs> As they commenced that attack, the Syrians probably thought that this would be over pretty quickly without a whole lot of bother on their part. But Elisha prays that God will blind them. And in one brief moment, all of their plans are thwarted. They evaporate into thin air. Imagine hundreds, if not thousands, of men on horseback and chariots and on foot suddenly rendered blind. The confusion must have been dramatic. Can you imagine what occurred in those first few seconds before each person could come to a complete halt to avoid trampling each other, realizing that they had no idea what was happening, where they were, or what direction was what anymore? Imagine the sudden silence that came over what had been the thundering of horses' hooves in the first moments of their attack. The townspeople looking on must have gone from terror to bewilderment at the sight spread out before them. Only Elisha and his servant were fully aware of what God had just accomplished. What happens next must have appeared almost comical. Elisha walks out to the leader of this army and informs him, This isn't the way. This isn't the city. Follow me and I'll bring you to the man of whom you speak. Of whom you seek. Now, in case you're uncomfortable with the thought that the man of God is lying or deceiving this Syrian officer, he does do exactly what he says. He leads him to Samaria, and when he gets there, the man they seek is there. Of course, he's been with them for the last 10 miles, leading them there. What else is the army to do? Someone has kindly offered to help them accomplish what they originally set out to do, even though now they are blind and are wondering what is going to happen to them. And they've been informed that they were mistaken about the prophet's location. They sheepishly follow the one whom they actually came to capture and take back to Damascus. If these Syrian men were not already terrified at the predicament, becoming sightless deep in enemy territory, they soon have every reason to do so, to be so, as they find themselves in Samaria, and Elisha prays for their sight to be restored. The tables have been completely turned on them now. They are the ones surrounded by their enemies and at their mercy. The king of Israel has had to have had great respect for Elisha for the numerous times his advice has saved him from serious calamity with battles with the Assyrians. And now he asks Elisha, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He's really excited. I mean, imagine having your enemy's army delivered to your doorstep and you have him surrounded instead of the other way around. But Elisha categorically rejects the king's suggestion. Maybe if the king had actually conquered this army in a battle, he might do some damage to them. But they've been delivered into his hand by Elisha, by God's work. Elisha suggests something strikingly different. Give them a meal 
and send them back to their master. People on both sides of this affair must have been shocked at Elisha's statement. How unlike the dealings of war we're used to seeing in the Old Testament. How dramatically like the New Testament in its concept. Recall Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. Somehow, we're not getting this. I'll read it. (laughs) But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Also, consider what Paul said in his letter to the Romans. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Imagine the consternation when those men return to their king's court in Damascus and report what had just happened. The Syrian king sends an army out to capture one man. And that man succeeds in blinding the whole army, leading them into the courts of his enemy, who proceed to hold a feast for them and send them back home unharmed. This action on Israel's part, Israel's part led the end of hostilities for some time between these nations. So what lessons can we learn from this story? One would certainly be that Elisha's approach to troubling circumstances teaches us something about what we place our trust in. His declaration, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them, is an important perspective to keep in mind whenever we're faced with what may seem like impending disaster. As Sue asked us to pray, I mean, there are millions of people in Florida and the southern coast who are facing an incredible impending disaster. Elisha had confidence that God was with him even when surrounded by enemy forces. What other situations threaten to overwhelm you? What problems seem insurmountable that you dread? Is there a relational crisis that seems to have no solution? A financial setback that seems hopeless to recover from? A health concern that doesn't appear to have much hope for improvement? We may not always be able to expect a quick resolution to our problems, but we can trust that God is with us in any and all circumstances and will see us through to the end. That may mean an eventual resolution of the problem in this life or the strength to face it without getting into despair and hopelessness while seeking to find what purposes God may have for us at this present moment. Our God is a God of hope, not despair, as we read in Romans. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. A second aspect of what Elijah said can be seen in the phrase, those who are with us. 
in one sense, we, we are confident that God is with us. But in this case, Elisha was specifically speaking about the hosts of the Lord's forces that were surrounding them and protecting from the enemy. In our case, we are called to be the community of God's people and to bear one another's burdens, whatever they may be. We are not alone. We're called the family of God. Do we really treat one another and care for one another as if we were a family? Yes, families have problems, but they're there for each other. Are we there for each other? We need to be involved in each other's lives so that we can be aware of ways that we may be able to assist and care for each other through difficult times. Practicing hospitality within the family of God and not just among close friends is a good way to begin to develop a sense of belonging that would help us truly bear one another's burdens. Elisha also demonstrated the importance of approaching any situation with prayer. He prayed that his servant would be able to see the salvation that God had in store for them. He prayed that God would blind his enemies to thwart their plans. And he prayed once more that he would open their eyes so that they could see the result of God's plan for their lives. One of hope and life, not death and destruction. We may not see dramatic miracles at every hand when we pray, but we can be sure that God will guide and direct us and help us work through our problems as we seek his aid. We can't expect him to provide we can expect him to provide wisdom to deal with any situation that confronts us if we're willing to trust him and follow his ways. But that means taking the time to learn what his ways are by studying his word and taking it to heart. The final lesson that we can learn from Elisha in this passage is to treat others with love regardless of how they treat us. God gave Elisha the ability to deliver his people's enemies into their hands. The temptation would have been strong to wipe them out and show those Syrians their God was not a God to be messed with. But that wasn't the way Elisha chose. Using force may provide a short-term solution to our problems, but in the long term, it will probably backfire and cause more problems down the road. Elisha took the approach of love and mercy. It served to temporarily put an end to hostilities between these two enemy combatants. And love, love is the way we have been called to live as disciples of Christ. It's the way that a poor rabble of believers eventually conquered the Roman Empire and convinced it that Christ was the better way. <clears throat> we seem to have lost sight of treating others with love and mercy in America today. It would appear that opposing sides of the political spectrum harbor only animosity and hatred for each other and are unwilling to view each other as reasonable people who wants best, want what's best for our nation. It seems that nothing short of a miracle can change the situation. But of all people, Christians should be able to show a better way through the loving way we treat others. In what ways might we follow Elisha's example in this story? How might we in effect, set a banquet for those who see us as enemies, who may even wish us harm, and in contrast, send them on their way in love. There's one other 
image I want to take out of this story to close with. Without Christ in our lives, we are all like that Syrian army. Wandering around blindly in enemy territory. In need of someone to take us by the hand and lead us to safety. There are many different prophets in this world clamoring for our attention. Wanting to help us and show us their way. But only one who can really be trusted. One who gave his life in our place so that we could receive our sight and be restored to the kingdom we were created to be part of. Just as when talking about physical sight, physical sight doesn't exist without light. And spiritual sight doesn't exist without the light of the world shining in our hearts. The one who came and died for us. Have you chosen to follow him? Or are you still lost in the dark? Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are a God to be trusted. A God that communicates with us. A God that has given us your spirit to guide us into all truth. We thank you so much for that. We pray that anyone here who has not taken advantage of, of that extraordinary sight that we have as we become members of your family, that they would consider doing that today, that they would talk to someone who would help them think about this and think it through. Thank you for also for the incredible physical senses that you gave us, the, this body that works so amazingly and, and is all that we need to navigate in this world. And thank you for your Son, in whom we really have light and light. We pray these things in Jesus' name.